All right. Well, it's so good to be here together this morning to celebrate our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and to look into the Word of God and to learn from it and grow from it and and plug these truths into our lives. Um, I do want to say happy Father's Day to all of our fathers. We have a lot of great fathers in our church. And uh, I got to say that being a dad to our three children has been one of the greatest joys and privileges of my life. And I absolutely love being a dad. But I've been saying this for a while now, once we became grandparents, that grandparenting is way better than parenting. So if you're young and you have young children, just wait. It gets a lot better. But for the first time in 32 years, Kathy and I have no children in the home. Our youngest daughter, Allison, who just turned 22 and is getting married in October, recently moved down to Florida. So now in our home, it's just me and Kathy. And Many of you have said over the years that you remember that transition of having children in the home to becoming empty nesters, and uh, you have said it's uh, kind of a neat thing, and Kathy and I have actually uh, come to appreciate that as well. We love our kids, and we told them all their lives they can live with us as long as they'd like, but now that they're gone... Uh, we're kind of enjoying uh, spending more time together. So, you know, we've been uh, reflecting on our journey as parents. And we're so grateful that God has given us three wonderful children who all love the Lord, all who are committed to the church. But it's been a reminder uh, for Kathy and I that being a parent is, is serious business in the eyes of the Lord. And last month we celebrated Mother's Day. We consider the heart of the Christian mother. And so it only seemed appropriate that today as we honor our fathers that we examine God's word on the heart of the Christian father. So as we begin today, uh, I cannot overstate the importance of godly leadership in the home. The Lord has given husbands the daunting responsibility to not only lead their wives, but also to lead their families. We need to take that seriously, dads and fathers. John MacArthur said in his book, Brave Dad, he said, nothing is a more worthy investment of any father's time and energy than this. Be a godly leader in your own home. MacArthur goes on to say, being the right kind of leader in the home doesn't involve some sort of mystical search for one's inner manhood. Rather, it's based on being diligent to apply straightforward and practical principles found in the Bible. And that's essentially what I want to consider with you today. As we look at the heart of the Christian father, basically what we need to do as fathers and as a church family is go to the Word of God and see what God says about that. But before we do that, I want to share with you some very interesting research as to the influence of a godly father in the home. According to Lifeway Research Group, Father's Day is the holiday with the single lowest average church attendance, statistically lower than Labor Day, Memorial Day, and even the 4th of July. And this is interesting, especially when you consider that Mother's Day tends to be the day with the third highest church attendance after Easter and Christmas. And so Mother's Day is one of the most highly attended Sundays of the year, and Father's Day is one of the lowest. And so what does that tell us? I was thinking about that. Could it just be logistics? Could it just be that the kids are, are out of school and parents are going on vacation? Is there more to it than that? I'm not sure, but I think whatever it does tell us, it's not good especially in comparison to the other holidays and to Mother's Day in particular. And as we think about the impact of a dad's faith and practice on their family, let me just give you some startling statistics, and maybe this will give us some insight as to why Father's Day is less attended than Mother's Day. According to data collected by Promise Keepers and Baptist Press, if a father is not committed to the church, even if his wife is only one child in 50 will become a regular worshiper when they reach adulthood. If a father does demonstrate commitment to the church, regardless of what the mother does, between two-thirds and three-quarters of their children will be committed to the church as adults. 
if a mother does not go to church, but a father does, a minimum of two-thirds of their children will end up attending church. And in contrast, if a father does not go to church, but the mother does, on average, two-thirds of their children will not attend church. Again, these are just findings from a study, but as I said, these are startling statistics. Listen to this. This has to do with Sunday school. When both parents attend Sunday school, in addition to the Sunday service, 72% of their children will attend Sunday school when grown. When only the father attends Sunday school, 55% of the children will attend when grown. When only the mother attends Sunday school, just 15% of the children will attend when grown. When neither parent attends Sunday school, only 6% of children will attend when they are grown. And so dads, this, these are just stats, but this should make us sit up in our chairs and ask us how we're doing. What kind of influence do we have in our homes? What kind of influence do we have over our kids? What kind of leadership are we providing in the home to our wives and to our children? One of the great joys that I have as a pastor is that I have the privilege of officiating at a lot of weddings. And when I say a lot of weddings, I mean, if some of you have been paying attention, I mean, we, we are having, it seems like a wedding a month, over and over and over again. We got all these kids being born in the church. Our church growth strategy is working. <laughs> we have all these marriages that are happening. I mean, there's exciting things going on at Grace Life Church. And these are just symptomatic of what's going on. People are meeting in church and they're getting married eventually. And they want to have a godly home. They want to raise their kids to know Christ. I get calls all the time from the people in the community asking if our church can be used for their wedding and if I would do the ceremony. And I'm always gracious with them, but, but I tell folks all the time, not particularly to the people that call, but I tell people all the time that I'm not in the wedding business. Some pastors will marry two unbelievers but my conviction is that I will only marry two believers in Christ who want to walk in the ways of the Lord. And so for every wedding that I conduct, I always have prerequisites. First, I need to hear their testimonies as to their faith in Christ. And then second, I require multiple sessions of premarital counseling. And in those premarital sessions, I cover a wide range of what God says about marriage. Because ultimately, isn't that what we care about? What does God say about how we are to be married? What are the obligations and the responsibilities of husbands? What are the obligations and responsibilities of wives? Sometimes I even say to the couple as I'm working with them in some counseling, I, I say to them, you know, in theory, in theory, this probably wouldn't be a great idea, but in theory, you could take somebody from New Jersey, a guy from New Jersey, and take a gal from North Dakota, and they've never met before, but they come together and arrange marriage, and if they follow the commands of God in his word, they can have a successful marriage. That's how important what God's word has to say about these things is. And so, as we're working through a number of different issues in premarital counseling, I always spend a significant amount of time on what God's Word says about parenting. And I always take the couple to Ephesians chapter 6. And so I'd like for you to turn there this morning. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. And so in succinct fashion, God, through the pen of the Apostle Paul to the church at Ephesus, has sort of given us a summary of the responsibilities of children and the responsibilities of their parents. And so I want to start here this morning in Ephesians chapter 6 and consider these directives, both for children and for parents. So first, as we look at this, I want to read it, and then we're going to consider God's directives for children. So we see that here, right, in verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you, and that you may live long on the earth. Fathers, 
And he uses fathers here because all throughout Scripture, we see that God has entrusted leadership in the home, in the marriage, to fathers, to to husbands. So fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So in verses 1 through 3, we see God's directives for children. We're only going to spend just a short time on this, but we see that here, right? There are two primary directives for children as it relates to their God-ordained responsibility to their parents. One is more of an action. The other is more of an attitude. And they're paired together here for a reason. And these two directives that we see here are obey and honor. This should be elementary and easy for us to understand. Children, you are to obey your parents. You are to obey your parents. So Paul says you're to do that because it's right. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. The Greek word for obey here is hupakuo. It was, it was often used in a, in a classroom setting for a student. And it means to carefully take in what the teacher says and then do it. Children are commanded by God to obey their parents. And this means whether they want to or not, whether they agree with their parents or not, whether they feel like it or not, children are to obey their parents. Why? Because it's right. This is God's design for parents. Parents have certain responsibilities to their children. Children have certain responsibilities to their parents. And, of course, the only exception to that, and the only exception to any uh, command like this, would be if parents were to ask their children to sin. And, of course, in that case, the Bible is clear in Acts 5.29 that we always obey God rather than man. Turn with me to Colossians. So, um, to the right, just two books, Colossians chapter 3, and look at verse 20. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 20. So he's talking about the Christian home here. In verse 18, he says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. And then he says, Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. This may sound odd, but you know what's missing in the lives of way too many folks who say they are Christians. They have forgotten that their mission on this earth is to please the Lord, to do what is pleasing to God, not what is pleasing to themselves, not what is pleasing to others, although they will benefit from our obedience to God, but what is pleasing to God. That is our mission. When we wake up every day, how can I please God today? How can I please my Savior who died in my place, who, have, who provided a way of salvation for sinners like us? How We live our lives matters. We're to live our lives as is pleasing to the Lord. Look at Colossians chapter 1 and verse 10. Just back a couple of pages. Colossians 1 and verse 10 says, So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of the Lord. All throughout Scripture, we find that our responsibility as the people of God is to live our lives to please God, to bring honor and glory to Him in whatever we do. And of course, this translates to all aspects of life, but in context here today as we're talking about parenting, that's where we need to be. We need to be thinking about how can I please God in how I parent my children. We think about the marriage context. We had a beautiful uh, wedding ceremony yesterday 
uh, Phil Gibble and Michaela Meyer were married, and uh, they're off getting ready to go to Cancun, Mexico for their honeymoon, pray uh, for them as they start their life together. But it's really a great uh, reminder, I think, for all of us. Every time I do a wedding or I'm at a wedding, I always think about, you know, the obligations. You know, you have all the, the things that, the, the, that they have to repeat, you know, all of the vows and all these kinds of things. And even when I'm saying, you know, Philip, please repeat after me, or Michaela, please repeat after me, I'm thinking about those commitments that they're making to one another and the commitment, the very same commitment that I made to my wife, Kathy, way back 35 years ago. And so I think that's one of the neat things about weddings is we are sort of reliving that in some ways as we listen to those vows being said. A big part of parenting is instructing our children as to what pleases the Lord. You follow me? So a big part of parenting is instructing our children as to what pleases the Lord. So when we're parenting our kids, we're saying, your actions do not please the Lord. You are being disobedient to your mom or you're being disobedient to your dad. That action does not please the Lord. And perhaps first on the Lord's list is as long as they are in our home and under our care and responsibility that we are to teach them to obey us. And one of the things I say when I'm working with, with uh, those who are working in their way towards marriage is require instant obedience from your children. Uh, delayed obedience is disobedience. So require them to get into the practice of when you tell them to do something, that they do it. They're obedient to what you have to say. And so that's part of parenting, is teaching them to obey us. But a second directive that we find here in verse 3 is that children are not only to obey their parents, but they are to honor them. This is different. Look at verse 3. So that it may be well with you, and that you may live long on the earth. What's that referring to? This honor in verse 2. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. This is a quote from Exodus chapter 20 and verse 12. And so if obedience is the action, honor is the attitude. And both are commands. The Greek word for honor here is tamao, and it means to hold in high esteem or to place upon something of very high value. This word was often used by military personnel when they came into the presence of someone with a higher rank than them. And honestly, I think honor is almost a forgotten virtue today. I think that everyone is, not everyone, but so many people are so jaded today. We've gotten away from the biblical commands. We are to be honoring those who are in authority over us. The Bible speaks of honor often. Honor those who are in authority over us. Honor those uh, elders and pastors who rule well, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. He actually says in 1 Timothy 5 and verse 17 that those people that do that, those men that do that, are worthy of double honor. It's the only place in Scripture where double honor is used. You know, this whole idea of honor, uh, I think kids got it back in the Old Testament. And we look at this as really hardcore. But you know, back in the Old Testament, in Exodus chapter 21 and verse 7, it says, if anyone was dishonorable to their parents or cursed their parents or struck their parents, you know what happened to them? They were put to death. I, I, I think we've, we're missing it in a lot of ways. Uh, honor is a part of being a Christian. We are to place those who are in authority over us at, in, in a, a place of high esteem and placing high value on them. I mean, if the President of the United States, who I disagree with on almost every policy that he has, if he walked into this room, I would show him honor as our President. I wouldn't refer to him as Joe. 
I would refer to him as President Biden because we are to respect those who are in authority over us. So honor, obedience, these are two directives that God gives for children. But we want to talk primarily today about two directives here for parents. Um, And we look at verse 4, and we see that fathers are not to provoke their children to anger, but they are to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so first, he says, as parents, and he said, he uses the word fathers here because, as I said before, he is delegating authority in the, in the home to fathers. They've been given that leadership responsibility, if they are in the home, that they're not to provoke their children to anger. And so in context here, this word provokes means to stimulate someone to anger. Pressing buttons so that we push our kids over the edge. So essentially what he's saying is our shepherding as parents, as fathers, should be motivated by love, not with ruling with an iron fist. As Christian parents, we should not want any part of pushing our kids over the edge and into anger and bitterness and resentments. But secondly, there's a second directive here, uh, which is that as parents, we are to dedicate ourselves to bringing up our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This is our primary responsibility, dads. Bodhi Bakum said, if I teach my son to keep his eye on the ball, but fail to, keep, to teach him to keep his eyes on Christ, I have failed as a father. The Greek word for bring them up means to nurture them up to maturity, to to bring along to health. It's the same word that's translated nourishes in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 29. It says, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. I I don't know how these things happen, but I pay attention. I mean, um, I just had an MRI yesterday done on my back, and there's a shortage of the contrast. There's a nationwide shortage of contrast. So a lot of times if you have an MRI done, they will do the MRI, and then they'll put a contrast in you, and then they'll do it again to see if there's any difference or anything that's, that's highlighted. Well, so there's a shortage on contrast of all things in our country, but there's a shortage of baby formula. Who would have ever thought that baby formula would be uh, something that moms and dads couldn't get their hands on? But that is indeed the case. And so when we think about this idea of nourishing our children, nurturing them up to maturity in a physical way, that would be a real impediment to not have the nutrients and the things that would help them along physically. But when we look at the Word of God, it says here that we are to nurture our children spiritually or feed our children spiritually the Word of God. Paul says to bring them up, to raise them up in the nurture and instruction of the Lord. I was just talking to one of our dads this morning about how big their little boy is getting. It's like every time I see him, he's growing. And, and it just it seems like it goes so fast, right, parents? I mean, our little kids are no longer little kids anymore. They're growing up. And we are to nurture them along. We're to give them spiritual nourishment by using the Word of God as our guide. The Bible has been described in many ways over the years. Some have said that the Bible is God's love letter to those He created. Others have described the Bible as His playbook for living our lives for Him. Some have characterized the Bible as God's unfolding plan of redemption for mankind. And still others have described the Bible as God's instruction manual as to how we can please Him And there may be truth in all those characterizations, but let's not miss what the Bible says about itself. And this is what I want to consider with you this morning. If we as parents 
And for some of us grandparents too, because we have a large part in the lives of our grandkids too, if we as parents are to bring our children up in the discipline and instruction of God's word, then it's important that we're very clear with our children as to why we are to do that. I remember on many, many occasions telling my kids, look, I, I mean, the easiest thing for me to do would be not to punish you for what you did, but God has given me some responsibility here, and I've got to raise you up. I've got to raise you up according to the principles in God's Word. It's really a neat thing, and I've said this before, and I don't mean to embarrass him because it will, but our son came to us when he was about 22 or 23 years old, and he pulled me and Kathy aside, and he said, I just want to thank you. I want to thank you for teaching me what is right and what is wrong. I just got a text this morning from our daughter who's in Florida, and she said the same thing. Dad, thank you for teaching me what is right, for teaching me to love the Lord. This is our responsibility and so we can say a lot of things about scripture but i think it's 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 really a helpful exercise for us to see what the bible says about itself okay so let's do that this morning and we could easily add to this list this is not a an exhaustive list it's more of a summary but let me give you if you're taking notes today five ways that the bible describes itself okay first at the heart of what the Bible says about itself is that it is the exclusive Word of God. Have you ever thought about this? The Bible is the only record of God's words. So why in the world are people looking in all other directions as to what the Lord would want for their life when we have the Bible? We have God's Word. 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17 says that all Scripture is inspired by God. It's beneficial for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man or woman of God may be fully capable, equipped for every good work. And that word inspired is an interesting word. The Greek word is theopneustos. It means God breathed. So literally God breathed out his word so that we know how to please him in this life. It's literally the words that God has breathed out to mankind. And the Apostle Paul says that it is fully adequate to teach and to train our kids how to know how they're to live for God. And the Bible can be trusted, right? Because Psalm 19, 17, 7 through 9 says that the Word of God is perfect. It's sure, it's right, it's pure, it's true. There's no chance that we are going to mess up our instructions to our kids if we stay anchored in God's Word. Now, they may not obey. We can't necessarily control outcomes. And we say this all the time, right? Our job is to do what? Is to be what? Just faithful, right? That's our job. We cannot do more than that. Just to be faithful as to what God says in His Word. So we are responsible for what God has given us in his word. We're responsible to be obedient, obedient to that. What pleases God? Well, what pleases God is when he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Not in a legalistic way, not in adding things to the Bible. Adding rules to the Bible. No, just the pure, unadulterated scripture. This is what we're accountable to. Because it's perfect, it's sure, it's right, it's true, it's, it's, it's absolutely pure. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 says, For this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of mere men, but as to what it really is, the word of God, which is also at work in you who believe. Secondly, the Bible says it possesses inherent power. I absolutely love this. Because the Spirit of God is the author of the Bible, there is power in the Scriptures. Hebrews 4.12, For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, even penetrating as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. 
And that is powerful, isn't it? That is powerful. We, I, I think I might have 30 or 40 Bibles in my library. There are some people in the world that don't have any Bibles. They don't even have a part of the Bible in their own language. And yet we have the Word of God. And what do we do with it? Are we in it? Are we saturating ourselves in God's Word? Are we reading it? Are we pouring over it? Are we asking God to help to appropriate it to our hearts and our lives because we want to please God with our lives? But there's power here contained in the words of God. Think about this. It contains the power to save us. The Word of God contains the power to save us. Romans 1, 16 and 17. It's the power, the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. It contains the power to sanctify us. John 17 and verse 17, when Jesus prayed His high priestly prayer shortly before going to the cross, He prays to God, sanctify them in Your truth. Your Word is truth. To be justified means to be saved, essentially. It means that we're declared righteous by God, by faith. We're justified by grace through faith in Christ and in Him alone, right? And then we're also sanctified at the moment of salvation in a positional sense, but then we grow throughout our our Christian lives. We grow in our sanctification, And whereas justification is monergistic in the sense that God acts alone in providing salvation to us, we don't cooperate with God. He doesn't come halfway and we come the other way. God God reaches out and He reaches down to, to sinners and He opens their eyes to His truth and He saves them from their sin upon faith in Jesus Christ. But sanctification, progressive sanctification is different. So sanctification and justification... Both happen at salvation, positionally, but progressively. How do we grow in the Christian life? I would love to just take some testimonies here this morning and be able to hear how you have grown in your Christian life. And when we say that, that's not arrogant to say, oh, God has worked in my life and, 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 and I've grown so much in my understanding of God. That's attributing to God what he's done in our lives. We take no credit for that. Yes, we're to be pleasing to the Lord in all aspects, in all regards. We're to worship Him with our lives. Paul said, for to me to live is Christ and to to die is gain. We're going to be held accountable as we stand before Christ as to how we've lived our lives for Him. How pleasing of a life have you lived for God? But the Bible contains the power to sanctify us. We're sanctified by the truth. And so how are we going to grow in the Christian life? We're going to grow in the Christian life by really digging into God's Word. Why? It's powerful. It's got inherent power. And so we dig into God's Word, and His Word penetrates the heart. It goes right through the bones, the writer of Hebrews said, right to the heart. It's able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Again, that's powerful. So it contains the power to save us, right? It contains the power to sanctify us, and it also contains the power to lead us to holiness, because isn't that what uh, Peter said that God said, as he quotes God, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Are we going to be perfectly holy in this life? No. Are we going to be perfectly holy today? (laughs) Probably not. Not in the same way that God is holy. But this is the charge for His people. We are to be holy as God is holy. Set apart unto Him for living our lives in accordance with His truth. And so it contains the power to save us. It contains the power to sanctify us. It contains the power to lead us to holiness. And it contains the power to defeat sin and shape how we think. It contains the power to defeat sin and to shape how we think and to bring our thoughts into spiritual obedience to God. If you would, since we're so close, go to Philippians 
chapter 4 and verse 8. And this has been on my heart for quite some time as I watch the landscape in which we are living. I, I cannot even get my, I'm not a techie guy, I cannot get my mind around the access of so much information today, just to be honest with you. I mean, I kind of yearn for the olden days uh, where you could go on vacation and nobody knew where you went, right? They can't get a hold of you unless they know where you're staying and you go into the hotel room in that little red light on the phone. Remember that thing? Beep, beep, beep. Oh, I must have a message. Well, how do you get the message? You got to go down to the front desk and ask if there's a message for me. Well, what room are you in, sir? 212. Oh, yes. Your son called. And he said this. I kind of yearn a little bit for the olden days where it wasn't instant access. If I don't respond, and, and we, we communicate a lot, right? So we're accessible. Pastor Flip and I have built our ministry on accessibility. We're accessible to you 24-7. And because of that, we have a lot of accessibility. We have a lot of interaction with you. And I think that's what ministry is. I can't stand this ivory tower mentality where the pastor comes and preaches and teaches and goes home and has nothing to do with the lives of the people. But with that accessibility comes vulnerability. And so um, we'll take it because that's what relational ministry is all about. When we say we love you, that means we really do. We're, we love you enough to where we're accessible 24-7. You want to talk to me, you want to talk to Pastor Flip, we're going to be there for you. But if I don't respond within five or ten minutes, people think something happened, right? Kathy will send me a text, and if I don't respond, like, immediately, you see these expectations in, the, in this information society that we live in, this microwave society where we want it now. We don't want to wait. Why didn't you get back to me? Well, it was only a minute and 30 seconds ago. I know, but you know you saw it. <laughs> so here's, here's what's been on my heart recently. Philippians 4.8. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if there is anything worthy of praise, Dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. And so here's what's on my heart, parents. We have to control what goes into the minds of our kids. We can't control it all, right? But we have to be so diligent in what we allow into the minds of our, killed, our children because it will shape them into who they are and what they believe and what they will accept. And the world's lying to them. The world is lying to your kids. We get it. We know the world's lying, but they may not. And so we must saturate these young minds in the Word of God and Control what goes into their minds. Unfettered access to the internet with your kids is a train wreck. I'm just telling you, they're going to get on there and they're going to find something that's not good for them. And then they, if, they, if their flesh likes that, whatever that might be, they may continue to do that. They may go underground, continue to use this instant access to things that are no good for them. The Bible contains the power to defeat sin and to shape how we think and to bring our thoughts into spiritual obedience to God. Third, the Bible says that it is sufficient for us to know how to live our lives for God. How do, how do we know how to live our lives for God? Well, the Bible says all you got to do is follow what the Bible is. We already read 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 that the Bible is fully adequate, it's fully sufficient 
Second Peter 1.3, God has given us everything we need for life and godliness in His Word. That's where we anchor. That's where we go. The Bible's sufficient. We don't need this, 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 and this to be added to the Bible. It's sufficient. You want to know how to live your life for God? Go to the Scriptures. This is where God has spoken. Fourth, the Bible says that it contains the wisdom and will of God. I love, I love the imagery of Psalm 119 and verse 9. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So at night, when we wander around the house, if we have to get up in the middle of the night and use the restroom or something, sometimes we'll stub our toe, we'll run into something, right? Well, that's kind of the way it is in the world. If we're up and we're wandering around with no light, no access to light, we're going to encounter things that we don't want to encounter. But this is why God's Word is a lamp to our feet. It lights the way. Like we can see where we're going because we have the Bible. It, it lights the way. God has given us His Word so we know how to please Him, how to walk. As we think about the wisdom and will of God, Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 17 says that the Scriptures are the, our greatest weapon against our adversary, the devil, and the powers of darkness. So it contains the wisdom and the will of God. And then fifth, the Bible describes itself as being eternal. So it's never going to run out of its power. It's eternal. Isaiah 40 and verse 8 says, The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the Word of God endures forever. Psalm 119 verse 160, The sum of your words is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Jesus said in Matthew 24 and verse 35, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Right? So this never becomes outdated. The Bible never becomes outdated. This contains the very words of God that we're to know. This book is thousands and thousands and thousands of years old from, from what we have in Genesis all the way to what we have at the end of Revelation. And yet it is as pertinent today as it's ever been. It's as true today as it's ever been. It's as applicable today as it's ever been. Do not listen to people that say that the Bible is outdated. Somehow society dictates now the words of God. No. No. God says, this is my word to you. You want to know how to live your life for me? This is where you find it. Right here in my word. So the Bible is never going to be outdated. As we go back to Ephesians 6 and verse 4, we find that these words, discipline and instruction, go together. And so this means that as parents, we're to use the Word of God to teach and to train and educate our children in all respects as to what pleases the Lord. And one of the verses that we as Christians, and Kathy and I had this, this verse on our wall for I don't know how long, 20 years maybe, it's the verse that we all hold on to tight as parents because, again, our job is just to be faithful. We can't control outcomes. But Proverbs 22 and verse 6 is a great um, verse for us as parents. If we train up our children in the way that they should go, when they grow old, they will not depart from it. And so what that means is, if we bring our children along with proper biblical nourishment and model the ways of Christ, it reduces the probability of them developing spiritual eating disorders. And let me just say this. Proverbs 22 and verse 6 is not a promise. It's a proverb. It's a probability. That's what the proverbs are. We never know, parents, some of you may have children that have gone off the path. You've trained them. You've taught them well. You've done your part. You've been faithful. But we never know when our work in training them up is going to kick in. Maybe it's going to be a little later in life. Our job is to be faithful. We're not in charge of outcomes. 
So I just want to put the cherry on top of the Sunday here as we wind things up this morning. If you would, turn with me all the way back to the Old Testament. Turn with me back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Because, you know, we've entitled the message today, The Heart of the Christian Father. And I think this is perhaps one of the best passages in all the Bible that would help us to understand what that means. I want to just real quickly zip through uh, four expressions of the heart of the Christian father. I've preached on this before. So beginning here with verse 4, you see the word here, right? That's the, the Hebrew word Shema. In Judaism, this passage that we're going to look at here just momentarily is what's referred to as the Shema prayer. And so this prayer is what's prayed by those in Judaism. Okay? And I actually heard at the Wailing Wall, at the Western Wall, on the Temple Mount area, they separate the men from the women, the men uh, on this side, the women on this side, and they are repeating this. This is, this is the prayer that is called the Shema prayer. And in it, we can grasp four expressions. And this is what I want to share with you, but I want to read it first. It's Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and should talk to them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your foreheads. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So the first expression of the heart of the Christian father is for us to love God with all of our being. You see how he starts. We can't expect our children to love God if we don't love God. If we're not modeling the love of the Lord in our lives, we can't expect our children to do that. Moses says, Hear, O Israel, Shema, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Jesus uses these very words when he's asked about the great commandment, right? What does he say? He refers back to what is stated here in Deuteronomy chapter 6. You're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second commandment is like it. You're to love your neighbor as yourself. Secondly, the second expression of the heart is to teach your children to do the same. So we model it, okay? We model it, and then we teach it to our children. Moses says, you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk to them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and so on. So teach your kids what? Like, what's he referring to? To love God with every fiber of your being. And how do we do that? Well, by teaching them to obey the commandments of God. How do they know the commandments of God? we got to get in the Word. Why? Because that's where the power's at. The power is in the Word of God. The third expression of the heart is to keep these words on the forefront of our minds and hearts. Moses says it this way, when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. So I don't know what else is going on uh, in a person's day, but I think what he's trying to say is these things should be on the forefront of our minds all the time. That we're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're We're to be in the lives of our kids to teach them to do the same. We should be thinking about this all the time. And by the way, I mentioned about the Shema prayer. The Jewish people pray this prayer twice a day. Once in the morning, once in the evening. When they lie down at night and when they rise up in the morning. And then the fourth expression of the heart is to do whatever is necessary to not forget these words. 
do whatever is necessary not to forget these words. He says to bind these words as a symbol on your body and on your houses. It's the old thing about tie a string around your finger. I never understood that. I did that when I was a kid one time, and I came home, and my finger was purple. And my mom said, what are you doing? You're cutting off the blood supply to your, to your finger and to your hand. And I said, well, the teacher told us to remember something, and so I tied a string around my finger to remember that. And she said, well, what is it that you're supposed to remember? I said, I don't know, but I got the, I got the string. <laughs> purple finger. But this is what he's referring to, to do whatever is necessary to not forget these words because they are imperative if we want to be good parents to our kids. Now, we don't have time to look at verses 10 through 15 this morning. But if we looked at it, basically what it says that if Israel obeys God's commands, they will prosper. And if his commands are ignored or disobeyed, then he will not bless them. But what we really want to consider today when we consider the heart of the Christian father is verse 7 and the responsibility of parents, in particularly fathers, to teach their children to love the one true living God. If your kid isn't an athlete, isn't the valedictorian of their class, if your kid's not the most popular kid in the classroom, if your kid struggles a little bit in this, that, or the other thing, doesn't have a lot of interests, it's okay. That's most of us. But our job as parents is to teach our kids to love God. So we celebrate Father's Day today this is what I want to encourage you with. And really, it's for both moms and dads, but I want to encourage you today to really be intentional with your parenting. Don't abrogate responsibility to someone else. Take your responsibility before God seriously. And, and I, in some ways, I feel like I'm preaching to the choir today because I feel like most of our parents are doing that. Look, it's hard. Parenting's hard today because of the influence that our kids are having outside of our families. I get that. But be diligent to impress these things in the hearts and minds of our kids and as the Lord allows our grandkids. So uh, this is a sermon sort of for parents, but sort of for all of us. It's a priority message where do our priorities lie? Hopefully, they lie with whatever God's Word says. Let's pray. Our Father, thank You this morning for Your love and Your grace and Your mercy. So great to be able to sing these songs that help us to remember what it is that You have done for us through Christ we're so grateful that you have provided a way of salvation for us, sinners, undeserving of your mercy and your grace, and yet you loved us so much. You demonstrated your love for us in that while we were yet sinners, you sent Jesus to die for us. We thank you for that. May we live our lives with the highest of priorities. May we take these words that we consider today and implant them on our hearts. And may we instill them on all those that we influence, especially our children and our grandchildren. We're so thankful for what you've done for us. May you continue to use us as imperfect as we are, and we are certainly imperfect, but you are perfect. Thank you for the powerful word of God that you've given to us. May we anchor there amid all of the stuff that's coming out of society today if it doesn't square with scripture we're not doing it we're not believing it thank you for your word in jesus name amen